Section 21. The French Revolution. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The French Revolution by Hilaire Belloc. Section 21. Chapter 5. Continued. I must not in all this be supposed to be belittling that great period between 1660 and 1789, during which the art of war was most thoroughly thought out, the traditions of most of our great European armies fixed, and the permanent military qualities which we still inherit developed. The men so caught as private soldiers could not but enjoy the game when it was actively played for men of European stock will always enjoy the game of war. They took glory in its recital and in its memories. To be a soldier, even under the servile conditions of the time, was a proper subject for pride. And it is further to be remarked that the excesses of cruelty discoverable in the establishment of their discipline were also accompanied by very high and lasting examples of military virtue. The behavior of the English contingents at Fontenoy afforded but one of many examples of what I mean. Still, to understand the wars of the Revolution, we must clearly establish the contrast between the so-called professional armies which preceded that movement and the armies which the Revolution invented, used, and bequeathed to the modern world. So also, to revert to what was said above, we must recall the dynastic and limited character of the wars in which the 18th century had been engaged at the outbreak of the Revolution. No other wars were contemplated by men. Had you spoken, for instance, at any moment in 1789, to a statesman, whether of old experience or only introduced to political life by the new movement of the position of Great Britain, he would at once have discussed that position in terms of Great Britain's recent defeat at the hands of France in the affair of the American colonies. Had you discussed with him the position of Prussia, he would at once have argued it in connection with Prussia's secular opposition to Austria and the Empire. Had you asked him how he considered Spain, he would have spoken of the situation of Spain as against France in the light of the fact that Spain was a Bourbon monarchy allied in blood to the French throne, and so forth. No true statesman imagined at the time, nor indeed for many years, that a war of ideas, nor even strictly speaking of nations, was possible. Even when such a war was actually in process of waging, the diplomacy which attempted to establish a peace, the intrigues whereby alliances were sought or neutrality negotiated, were dependent upon the older conception of things, and the historian is afforded, as he regards this gigantic struggle, the ironic satisfaction of seeing men fighting upon doctrines the most universal conceivable, and yet perpetually changing their conduct during the struggle, according to conceptions wholly particular, local, and ephemeral, and soon to be entirely swept away by time. Napoleon himself must needs marry an Austrian archduchess as part of this old prejudice, and for years brains as excellent as Danton's or Talleyrand's conjecture the possibility of treating now England, now Prussia, as neutral to the vast attempt of the French to destroy privilege in European society. 
One may say that for two years the connection of the revolutionary movement with arms had no aspect save that of civil war. True, wherever a considerable change in progress in society, the possibility of foreign war in connection with it must always arise. Were some European state, for instance, to make an experiment in collectivism today, the chance of foreign intervention would certainly be discussed by the promoters of that experiment. But no serious danger of an armed struggle between the French and any of their neighbors in connection with the political experiment of the revolution was imagined by the mass of educated men in France itself, nor without the boundaries of France during those first two years. And I repeat, the military aspect of those years was confined to civil tumult. Nevertheless, that aspect is not to be neglected. The way in which the French organized their civil war, and there was always something of it present from the summer of 1789 onwards, profoundly affected the foreign war that was to follow. For in their internal struggles, great masses of Frenchmen became habituated to the physical presence, millions to the discussion of arms. It is, as we have seen in another part of this book, a repeated and conspicuous error to imagine that the first revolutionary outbreaks were not met sufficiently, sternly, by royal troops. On the contrary, the royal troops were used to the utmost and were defeated. The populace of the large towns, and especially of Paris, proved itself capable of military organization and of military action. When to this capacity had been added the institution of the militia, called the National Guard, there were already the makings of a nation wholly military. Much of this exceptional and new position must be ascribed to the Gallic character. It may be said that from the fall of the Roman Empire to the present day, that character has been permanently and of its own volition steeped in the experience of organized fighting. Civil tumult has been native to it. The risk of death in defense of political objects has been equally familiar. And the whole trade of arms, its necessary organization, its fatigues, its limiting conditions, have been very familiar to the population throughout all these centuries. But beyond this, the fact that the revolution prepared men in the school of civil tumult was of the first advantage for its later aptitude against foreign powers. It is always well in history to fix a definite starting point for any political development, and a starting point of the revolutionary wars may easily be fixed at the moment when Louis, his queen, and the royal children attempted to escape to the frontier and to the army of the center under the command of Boulay. This happened, as we have seen, in June of 1791. Many factors combined to make that date the starting point. In the first place, until that moment, no actual proof had been apparent in the eyes of European monarchs of the captivity of their chief exemplar, the King of France. The wild march upon Versailles in the days of October 1789 had its parallel in a hundred popular tumults with which Europe was familiar enough for centuries. But the rapidly succeeding reforms of the year 1790, and even the great religious blunder of 1791, had received the signature and the public assent of the crown. The court, though no longer at Versailles, was splendid, the power of the king over the executive still far greater than that of any other organ in the state, 
and indefinitely greater than that of any other individual in the state. The talk of captivity, of insult, and the rest, the outcries of the emigrants, and the perpetual complaint of the French royal family in its private relations seemed exaggerated, or at any rate, nothing to act upon. There came the shock of the king's attempted flight and recapture. This clinched things, and it clinched them all the more, because more than one court, and especially that of Austria, believed for some days that the escape had been successful. Again, the flight and its failure put the army into a ridiculous posture. Action against the revolution was never likely, so long as the discipline and steadiness of the French army were believed in abroad. But the chief command had hopelessly failed upon that occasion, and it was evident that the French-speaking troops could not easily be trusted by the executive government or by their own commanders. Furthermore, the failure of the flight leads the Queen, with her vivacity of spirit and her rapid, though ill-formed plans, to turn for the first time to the idea of military intervention. Her letters suggesting this, in the form of a threat rather than a war, it is true, do not begin until after her capture at Veronese. Finally, coincident with that disaster, was the open mention of a republic, the open suggestion that the king should be deposed, and the first definite and public challenge to the principle of monarchy which the revolution had thrown down before Europe. We are therefore not surprised to find that this origin of the military movement was followed in two months by the declaration of Pilnitz. With the political nature of that declaration, one must deal elsewhere. Its military character must here be observed. The declaration of Pilnitz corresponded as nearly as possible to what in the present day would be an order preparatory to mobilizing a certain proportion of the reserve. It cannot with justice be called equivalent to an order calling out all the reserves, still less equivalent to an order mobilizing upon a war footing the forces of a modern nation, for such an action is tantamount to a declaration of war, as, for instance, was the action of the English government before the South African struggle, and Pilnitz was very far from that. But Pilnitz was certainly as drastic a military proceeding as would be the public intimation by a group of powers that the reserves had been warned in connection with their quarrel against another power. It was, for instance, quite as drastic as the action of Austria against Servia in 1908, and it was intended to be followed by such submission as is expected to follow upon the threat of superior force. Such was the whole burden of Marie Antoinette's letter to her brother, who had called the meeting at Pilnitz, and such was the sense in which the politicians of the revolution understood it. All that autumn and winter, the matter chiefly watched by foreign diplomatists and the clearest of French thinkers, was the condition of the French forces and of their command. Narbonne's appointment to the war office counted more than any political move. Dumouriez's succession to him was the event of the time. Plans of campaign were drawn up and promptly betrayed by Marie Antoinette to the enemy. Manifold occasions for actual hostilities were discovered. The revolution challenged the emperor in the matter of the Alsatian princes. The emperor challenged, through Konitz, the revolution in a letter directly interfering with the internal affairs of France and pretending to a right of integrance therein and on the 20th of April, 1792, 
war was declared against the empire. Prussia therefore informed the French government that she made common cause with the emperor and the revolutionary struggle had begun. The war discovered no serious features during its first four months. So slow was the gathering and march of the Allies. But the panics into which the revolutionary troops fell in the first skirmishes, their lack of discipline and the apparent breakdown of the French military power, made the success of the invasion in force when it should come seem certain. The invading army did not cross the frontier until more than a week after the fall of the palace. Longway capitulated at once. A week later, in the five days of August, the great frontier forest of Verdun was summoned. It capitulated almost immediately. The end of section 21.